Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Sometimes we get uncomfortable with language like friend of God, but uh, I think it says that of Abraham, that he was a friend of God. He uses that word, friend. Hmm. It makes us an enemy of God, it says in James, doesn't it? Amen. Well, um, I'd like to... Take us to Matthew chapter 5, and before we read our passage here, um, anybody been through a really hard time? I know I know you have, and so it's rhetorical, but um, isn't it true of all of us that we go through some hard times? And I think for the Christian, we have a resource for that, and it's, it's not only prayer. We have prayer, and we've exercised that, and we believe that with Christians, uh, when we're following Christ, we're trusting in Christ, there's no dead ends, there's no... Um, situations in which God can't move and change circumstances. You know, I think whenever I think of that, I think of the Red Sea and how Israel were backed up against the Red Sea with the Egyptians pursuing, and there's no place to go. Uh, And they thought, naturally, this is it. We're either going back to Egypt or worse. And God made a way, didn't he? And not only did he make a way, but he put a fire, a wall of fire there to shield his people from the Egyptians. And so uh, God can make incredible ways. And one of the ways that he does that is he prepares us in advance. I don't believe that God, uh, uh, Christ in particular, shields us from every difficulty of life. Um, There are some that that think that and some that teach that. I don't think that God does that. But what what he does uh, for us is he gives us promises that will sustain us through it. And I think God always delivers, and he always delivers in one of two ways. He either delivers us out of the circumstance or he delivers us through the circumstance. Okay, can you can you wrap your mind around that? Delivering us out is rather easy to see. It's when God created a way through the Red Sea and he delivered his people out. Delivering through is when he allowed the, the three Hebrews to go through the fire. And he walked with them through it. So one of two ways he will deliver, but God always delivers his people. We always come out victorious in the end. Uh, but I think it's um, a misunderstanding of Scripture to think that he's going to keep us from every trouble. He does allow us to go through trouble, but his promises hold us steady in the midst of that. And so I'd like to talk about some of the things that uh, Jesus said. And so tonight we want to start a series. I think it'll probably take about 12 weeks to do this on the Beatitudes, and uh, we'll take a look at what Beatitude means, uh, the different statements that Jesus made regarding the Beatitudes, what what that's all about. And tonight's more of an introductory, uh, but these are the things that Jesus tells his disciples in order to prepare them for what's to come, because do you know that all of his immediate disciples, Judas excluded, we'll leave that story for another time, but all the other disciples, except for John, were martyred for their faith. All of them. 
all of them would be mistreated and endure difficulty. Paul even says when he's writing to Timothy, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we're, we're told that that's going to come. But if we know ahead of time, if we have our, our mindset on the, not, not in a dreary and bleak kind of way that just looks for the negative in the world, but in the kind of way that says, I'm prepared that this might happen and I'm armed for it so that I can be strong through it, then we can be strong as Christians. And I think this is part of what uh, Christ is doing in the Beatitudes is he's He's helping to encourage his disciples because more difficult times will come. And they're going to have to have their their moorings. They're going to have to have their anchor. They're going to have to have their foundation, whatever metaphor you choose there, in something strong to help them outlast that. I remember in Bible college, uh, uh, we had a, um, every Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday, maybe it was Friday, it was Friday, um, we had a senior that would preach in chapel, and I remember this one, this one girl was preaching this 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 morning in chapel, and she said, "Those who are strong in Christ have big feet," and that metaphor stuck with me because when you got big feet, hard to push you over. You know what I mean? You can get those feet planted, and that's what I think uh, Christ is doing in this. Matthew five uh, through seven is known as something. Anybody want to uh, just go ahead and shout out what it is? What's Matthew 5 through 7? The Sermon on the Mount. All right, look look at that, Beatitudes. It should say Beatitudes there. And uh, we're going to take a look here at the Beatitudes. And um, Matthew 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if Matthew recorded everything for us, I don't know if you thought about this, but uh, if he recorded everything Jesus said, and I'm not certain that he did, um, then it would have taken about 15 minutes to say all of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that amazing? And uh, he said in about 15 minutes. And Matthew may have only recorded that which the Spirit of God wanted him to highlight in the Gospel. And my, my precedent for that would be when John writes at the end of John, if all the works that Jesus did were recorded, the books of the world couldn't contain it. So what we know is that what we have in Scripture is not everything, but what the Holy Spirit felt was essential for us to know. Okay, And and that comes with a caution to it. If it's not put in the book and it's not intended for us to know, then perhaps it's good not to speculate too much and get distracted in those areas. But it's good to stick to what we can know. Remember the, the verse in the Old Testament? I can't remember who said it. The hidden things belong to the Lord, but the revealed thing belongs to us and to our children. There are things that God didn't tell us. And we can sit around speculating about that. I know a lot of folks who they would rather speculate about what's not known than really deal with what is known. And what we have here is what's known. Fifteen minutes, and you can look it up. Go to your U version. Start playing the audio of chapter 5 and look at the end. It's about four and a half minutes, I think. The next one's about three and a half minutes. You go through each of those chapters. It totals somewhere around... 15 minutes for all of the Sermon on the Mount. And if we wanted to, we could just read those words and go home tonight and not uh, take any more time to deal with it. But what we're going to do is going to take a little bit longer than all of that. And when you think about this, the riches that are found in these words, it puts any other preacher to shame. Uh, We expound for hours and he lays open the kingdom in 15 minutes. It's pretty glorious the way that Jesus did that, don't you think? Uh, and the only consolation to it taking so long for us, 12 weeks of one hour 
or 45-minute sessions is that what Jesus spoke in 15 minutes deserves to be talked about through a whole lifetime. And uh, this won't take that long either. So we're somewhere in between 15 minutes and a lifetime. Uh, We can all rejoice in that. Uh, But it's important to ask the question, what is Jesus trying to say? Let's uh, look at our verses here, and we'll we'll talk about this a little more, what's leading up to it and uh, where all of this is going. Reading from verse 1, says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before them or before you, they'll persecute you in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. And so here we have Jesus um, in the previous chapter calling his disciples to come follow him. He walks along the Sea of Galilee and uh, calls different ones. Um, any particular disciples stand out that's relevant to our passage tonight? Think about it for a moment. Which one? Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi. He goes by either name. Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. And why, why is he significant, Jeremy? It's his gospel, which means that when these words are being said, he's there. And I don't know if he, being a tax collector, was a meticulous note taker, or if he, because of the way the Hebrew mind worked with oral tradition, if he heard it and he remembered it and he wrote it down later. But we're getting Matthew's account. And I think this is fabulous because... I, can't, I almost have to think with a smile, Matthew's sitting there, and the Spirit of God is laying on him some heavy treasure that he's going to later on put in the gospel and share with us. That's, that excites me. So Jesus calls his disciples. He's, he's growing in popularity. It would appear that either Jewish people from different regions outside of the Holy Land, like Syria, and the Gentile regions of the Gerasenes and Galilee and, and all over the place are, are beginning to follow him. And maybe even some Gentiles, we don't, we don't have that particularly, but it's not unreasonable to think of. Some people think that in the region of Galilee, up to 50% of the population was Gentile. So go figure that out. Did Jesus speak Greek? I think so. Did he speak Hebrew? Probably. Uh, most definitely he spoke Hebrew. Aramaic? Probably. He was multilingual. And so we have uh, Jesus reaching a, a growing crowd that's beginning to follow him. And it tells us here that when he saw the crowds, this is a favorite statement of Matthew's. He likes to bring out how Jesus saw. He, he looks out and he perceives and he's moved to do something. It says in another place that seeing the crowds, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion upon them and he healed their sick. He saw them. Matthew points that out, that Jesus looks out and perceives the crowds and knows that he has to respond in the messianic way that he's called to. And what he does here is that his 
compassion, if you will, or his responsibility or his calling uh, speaks to him to begin to teach them. And that's another thing that comes up is that he teaches them as a response to that, that there is some kind of a spiritual ignorance that's here. And and this is true of the crowds, but it seems more specifically, if you look at verse 1 uh, with me, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and the disciples came to him and he began to teach. And so he's beginning to teach them. But I'd like you to notice, first of all, the place. What's the place that we have mentioned here? The mountain. Anybody know where that's at? I'm just, I'm going to let the pressure off. I don't know for sure. And so I'm not looking for a specific answer. If you said mountainside, you're right. Some kind of mountainside, some kind of mountain. The geographical indication would be the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee because that's where the elevation rises more steeply, and so that's likely. Jesus taught there. There's probably some traditional places, but all the Bible scholars I read, they don't want to take a guess and risk their reputation on it. So we don't know exactly where this is, but we know it's on a mountainside somewhere in the region of Galilee, probably north and west of the lake. And this particular uh, comment has invited some people to compare this to Moses on the mountain. I don't know if you thought about this, and I don't know that I'd thought about this, but here we have Jesus teaching from a mountain. When else did we see that? Somebody of great authority. Jesus calls, um, uh, Moses says that there will be a prophet like unto me that will come. So um, we see that in Exodus chapter 24, I think verse 12, Jesus on the mountain. And so some have thought of this comparison between the two or a contrast between the two because what Jesus comes with here is not necessarily law. Okay? He's, he's teaching them characteristics of what the kingdom is like. More on that in a moment. But he went up on a mountainside to, to teach them. And so people gathered around, and specifically, I'd like you to notice that when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Do you notice that? The crowd has narrowed. And so it seems to me the, the exact crowd that Jesus is talking to as he gives this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is the disciples, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a few stragglers in there that come out of the larger crowd. Jesus always has concentric circles of people gathered around him. Have you ever seen that? Like there's, if, if you want to think about it this way, uh, and I know God loves us all the same. He does. But how did John refer to himself? The one whom Jesus loves. He's saying what Gary's saying. I'm a friend of God, and he's my best friend forever. That's what John's saying. And so in John's mind, the concentric circle is him and Jesus and everybody else. Right, And then you have another circle around that, according to the Gospels, and that would be what we might call the inner circle. And who are, who are they? P- Peter, James, and John, right? That they're gathered around. Then we have a larger group, which is the disciples. And we could probably put in there, in some kind of similar friendship type, type of intimacy, the, the women who were following with Jesus, who many times got it. They got the message when the guys didn't. And then uh, beyond that, we have the crowd. We could put another circle around that would be perhaps the opposition. And then outside of that, perhaps Gentiles. 
Don't, uh, if you're a Gentile, don't be offended tonight. I am too. Jesus grafted me in. So I'm there with John, right? How about you? Friend of God. So we see the place on the mountainside. It draws some comparison to Moses on the mountain coming down to deliver law. But this is, this is different as we, we see and we will see in, in the weeks to come. I'd like you to notice his posture here. What does it say about Jesus' posture? He went, upon the, he went on the mountainside, and then he sat down. That's interesting, isn't it? Tonight, as I'm teaching, I'm standing, and this is kind of the way we do things. But that wouldn't have been the case in Jesus' day. Sat down. This is the authoritative posture of a rabbi. When you sit down, he's taking the posture of a teacher, a rabbi. And when uh, the custom was in the synagogue, when you read the scripture, you stood to read the word, but then a respected teacher sat down to teach it. So you read the word standing, and he sits down to teach on it. Remember Jesus in the synagogue, I think Luke chapter 4, he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and he goes into the synagogue, and he reads the words of Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news. And he gets finished reading the scroll and he rolls it up and he sits down. And then he says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. He takes the moment to do some scriptural exposition and teaching on what that meant, that the kingdom has truly come. And so he sat down. This is that authoritative position. And it might be interesting to know that the Hebrew word for school is yeshiva, Y-E-S-H-I-V-A, if we transliterate in our English characters. And the word for school, yeshiva, means the seat. So when they come to sit around Jesus, they're sitting at the seat of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? So this is happening, and, and many times we just read through this, and we haven't taken the time to unpack it, or perhaps we didn't know these things. The posture of Jesus shows that he's taking the position of the rabbi. Let's just make it a capital V, and then a capital R, right? And let's just make sure that we know that this is the teacher, right? I mean, there are other teachers, but he's the teacher, okay? Moses is a kind of teacher, but a greater than Moses is here. Solomon had wisdom, but a greater than Solomon is here. And so he sat down and he began to teach. I'd like you to notice, uh, that was, we talked about his place, his posture. And then uh, for the rest of this tonight, let's talk about his pronouncements. And uh, we're not going to go into one in particular, but I want to talk about some things that will help us through all of these. And so when we look at his pronouncement, it says that he began to teach them. This is in verse 2. He began to teach them. Uh, NIV doesn't carry over the Semitic expression. He opened his mouth and he taught them. That's kind of a, uh, a way of saying that he's, he's teaching them. There's some repetition in that. Uh, it just simplifies it in saying that he began to teach them. That's how we would say it. Uh, but when Christ teaches, um, F.W. Borum in his book, The Heavenly Octave, he talks about the um, he talks about the beatitudes in there, and he says Christ does not begin his sermon on the mount as the law was delivered on the mount, with commands and threatenings, the trumpet sounding, the fire flaming, the earth quaking, the hearts of the Israelites fearing, 
But our Savior begins with promises and blessings. Isn't that wonderful? I think of John here, don't you? Uh, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's taking a little bit of a different approach here. It's not that what Moses did was wrong or worse. It was the right thing to do in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Right? And so now he's beginning to bring the blessing. So we get beatitude here. And I don't know if you've thought about this word. This is kind of a simple definition. We'll talk about it a little bit more uh, in our, our notes here. But this is a state of utmost bliss, perfect happiness. Now, before you go all crazy on me because of my sermon on Sunday that our feelings aren't so important to how we should act, I want you to know that there's more to this happiness than just feeling elated. Okay, you understand what I mean by that? That we can be happy in one sense while we're sorrowing. Think of what Paul said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That somehow there was a spiritual kind of happiness that could come in even in the darkest moments. And that's true of us. We live in this paradox between two worlds because we're holding on to two worlds in a sense. We're, I know we don't want to hold on to this one, but we have to live in this one. But we're holding on to another world, aren't we? Heaven is invading and the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. It's where heaven touches earth because of Christ. The Holy Spirit can dwell within us. And so we can live in that state of paradox where we're dealing with a difficulty, but we still can rejoice in the middle of it because we know that there is well-being, peace in life because of what God's done. So we have beatitude, and uh, this word is kind of strange to us. Do you know it's not, in our English translations, it's not mentioned there. Maybe you have it in one of the headings I do in, in mine. It says the beatitudes, but... That's when Matthew wrote, he didn't write, okay, let's put a heading here, the Beatitudes. And then he went on. No, this is something that translators later added to help us to know what's happening in this particular portion of Scripture. So it's really, it's not there. And so when we hear Beatitudes, where does that come from? Well, I hope that uh, this will show us here a little bit. This is from the Latin Vulgate. Anybody heard of the Vulgate before? It was the Bible of the church for a thousand years, starting with Jerome, somewhere around 432, if I'm not mistaken. He translated the Bible, and for a thousand years, the Western church uh, moved away from the Greek and started using the Latin, and they even used the Vulgate when people didn't speak Latin anymore. So when you went to church, you had to hear some language that sounded strange, and uh, Many times people were ignorant of the gospel and they expected the priest just to do the mass for them because how could they participate if they didn't know? Anyway, the Latin Vulgate served a purpose while people could understand it. Once it passed out of understanding, we needed translation. But I'd like you to notice here how this is, this is the 11 verse of the Beatitudes. Just notice here, be a T. And uh, do you notice that next word here? I don't know how to pronounce it, but I would think it'd be something like pauperes, which sounds like paupers to me, right? Okay, spiritu, spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. But we get it from beatitude. We get beatitudes from beati from the Latin, and we don't use that anymore, but we continue to hang on to the term beatitude. That's a, 
it's from uh, beatitude, the, the larger word than just the beati, uh, from about the 15th century. And it's a state of utmost bliss or perfect happiness. And it's not a word used in our translations. The noun form is beati, but this form is the form for blessed. I'd like you to notice as we think about what's in the Beatitudes, and we'll come back to the word blessed in just a moment, that these are, are characteristics, not exactly rules. You would, you would think that uh, Jesus would use some kind of imperative form where he'd say, you must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do that. We hear that in other places, don't we? That's, that's law. Those are commands. And, and what we see here is him uh, speaking of characteristics, not exactly rules. Rules would say do or do not. And we love, I felt that early in my Christian walk, uh, I love to make rules out of everything. I wanted to skip through all the other stuff and get to the rules so that I could obey them. Anybody else want to do that? Or is that something that's <laughs> uniquely weird to me? I know there are others. We, we love to find the rules so that we can know, if I follow this, I'm right. Well, you're not right based on rule keeping. We follow the rules because we want to show our love for God, not because we're earning his favor. Are you with me? So it's not exactly rules that we have here. Um, Rules can be good, but not everything is a rule. And Jesus is more subtle here in calling people into the kingdom of God. He, He does it by describing those who follow after God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for example. Okay? The invitation is to the happiness that follows, and the choice is up to the listener. So they're being compelled. I'd like you to notice also that these are also encouraging those who live uh, contrary to the world in the kingdom of God, that their well-being isn't of the world or with the world. Jesus is calling for characteristics that go against conventional wisdom. I want to talk more about that in a minute. Uh, But a good example of that is the meek shall inherit the earth. What we would expect to find is those who are the most powerful will conquer the earth. Right? Wouldn't you expect that? Build your army the biggest you can, get as much strength as you can, and conquer. This is uh, what Nietzsche would call the, the Superman, that we have to rise beyond this this weak-minded thinking that Christianity has uh, diseased us with and become powerful. And when we become powerful, we will overcome and we will achieve the superman. That's what he would, he would say. And so he despised Christianity because he felt it, it elevated the weak and it demoted the strong. And in a sense, it does that, doesn't it? It flips the tables. He was right in his assessment Remember what James says? Uh, you who are rich need to weep and mourn because your riches are passing away. You who are poor, rejoice because your riches are in heaven. That's flipping the tables. And it's not saying that riches or being poor, there's anything virtuous or bad about those things. It's saying that there's going to be something that's going to change all of that where that's not the currency anymore. Okay, and that, that will come certainly when Christ returns. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Conventional wisdom says it's not the weak, but the powerful who will conquer the earth. And so this is the kind of thing which distinguishes the gospel. Jesus is showing us that, and he's encouraging those who will have to take a weaker position because 
um, they're they're gentle. He's encouraging them that uh, God's taking care of them. And maybe that's one of the questions that we come to when we trust God and we forgive people that have wronged us or we make ourselves vulnerable and put ourselves out there like God would have us to do. You know what I mean? Like when if you, if you, if you try to open up and trust people, sometimes we're afraid we're going to get hurt with that. But God still wants us to do that. You know, Jesus went knowingly face forward into suffering. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And he knew what awaited him there, and he did it for the sake of love. He went into knowing pain out of love. Thought of that? Sometimes we're like, if I really live the gospel out the way Jesus is telling us to, I'm probably going to get hurt. Well, you might, but this what this what's being dealt with here is you can still be blessed. You can be blessed in the middle of that. And, and I'll come to that more as I said, in just a moment. Are there, are there other Beatitudes in Scripture that you can think of that follows this blessed are format? Anybody think of any? Is it just math? What is it? Help me with that. I know what's there, but I don't remember how it's exactly said. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. It could be. That's. It doesn't fit ex- as closely as some other scriptures to this, but it could be. How about Psalm one one? Anybody know that one? Blessed is the one who does not walk in the in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on His law day and night. A person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Blessed is the one. Okay? That's following the same kind of format that we have in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are. A characteristic is described. A condition is set in place. And then perhaps the circumstances in which they have to deal with life. But those circumstances, if we were to create an equation out of this, there's the blessed state. That's the first thing that's stated. Would you agree? Blessed are those. Okay? And then there's the characteristic of the person, and then there's the circumstances. And I'd like you to notice, if we're thinking of a formula here, the circumstances don't cancel out the blessing if the characteristics are in place. So what, what I mean by that is that if you are who you are before God and you're trusting Him, and God is who He says He is, whatever anybody else does, they can't pluck you out of His hand and they can't steal your ultimate blessing. They can make life rough, but they can't take away your bliss. Amen. Crickets. I thought we'd be excited about that. Isn't that exciting? It's good news, isn't it? Or maybe we need convincing. Well, the Hebrew word uh, often referred to here as blessed refers to the happiness that God-given security and prosperity produce. And uh, the Greek word for it, and I want to come to that here, is makarios. This is really interesting. I think this is where it gets interesting. We'll take a little more of our time for this. 
And this word means pertaining to being happy with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. And so there's a little bit of a paradox here because the circumstances that are mentioned in here, if you look at look at this list, blessed are the poor in spirit, really? Uh, blessed are those who mourn? That doesn't seem right quite, does it? Blessed are the meek? Is there... People who maybe have power but it's under restraint or they're, they're not strong in the world's ways. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Yep, I'm blessed when I'm persecuted. Well, these are the words of Jesus. You decide. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward. And you're kind of being like the prophets in your life or your circumstances are like them. So you have these circumstances that seem unfavorable, but Jesus comes in and says, yes, but you should be congratulated because there are other circumstances that not only offset that but counterbalance that. Listen to Paul's way of saying this. These light and momentary troubles are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. Okay? The glory will outweigh the trials. In other words, you set them in a scale. Some translations, and I, and I think I have this other um, definition here in Bauer, Bauer's um, Dictionary pertaining to being especially favored, blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged, fortunate, kind of as a nuanced word we might want to avoid because of uh, how that could relate to happenstance. We don't really we don't really believe we're blessed because of just having a, a favorable moment, but because we're in a fixed position with God. Some translations, this is uh, David Bentley Hart's translation, how blissful. He calls the blessed, how blissful. Uh, good news translation, true happiness for those. And this is Woos translation, spiritually prosperous are those. And so there, it seems to me that commentators are having a hard time finding one English parallel to meet this word. Okay, It's, it's rich. And that's good. I mean, we might think, oh man, the translators, they can't get on the same page. What's wrong with them? The problem is that a word in any two languages don't exactly match up. You know, you can't just take one word and go, well, this is that word in Greek. You can't do that because no two words, and no two words in the English language are exactly, can overlap. So you have to kind of grasp at a way to explain this. And one of the ways, or these three ways they've explained it, blissful, true happiness, spiritual prosperity, this is all part of what Jesus is talking about. So this would sound like, if uh, we just listened to this, we didn't know it was Jesus, and we heard somebody talking like this, we might think that this was a per- person who lost touch with reality, unless we remember that there's more to life than present circumstances. Blessed is a better word than our word happy, because happy stands related to hap, which is, you've probably heard of happenstance, or it just so happens, Right? Phrases like that, the, the root word for that, hap, means that coincidentally or out of luck, this certain thing happened, this certain thing occurred, 
but it wasn't really tied to purpose. You understand? Like, I just happened to find $5. Well, you might chalk that up to divine providence, or maybe somebody just dropped it, and maybe God's not superintending all of that. I don't, I don't know. I, I think that there's probably some freedom within the, the movement of God. But, uh, it, you know, when we talk about luck, we're talking about happenstance. And this is more than that. Blessed has to do with the joys that arise spontaneously and inevitably from a certain fixed condition. And the fixed condition has to do with our standing in Christ. There's presently a hidden well-being that is yours, kept by God. Have you thought of that? You have, a, you have an inheritance kept for you in heaven, Peter says. Kept for you in heaven. Locked away, secure, kept. So whatever people can do to you on earth, they can't touch that. I'm glad for that. And that ought to encourage us as we're thinking about the difficulties we go through in life. That you have your, uh, this is probably not the appropriate way to say it, but you have a spiritual nest egg that you're counting on that's been given to you. It's precious and purchased for you through the blood of Christ. It's the hidden well-being for those who are kept by God. Also, there's God-given grace for bearing up now. And there is the future well-being that can't be shaken or taken for those whose minds are fixed on him. So Makarios here is a state of well-being not diminished by present circumstances. It, it takes negatives and it reclassifies them as positives if they can be used in the service of God. In all the Beatitudes, there are present conditions which don't look like being blessed. Right? Think about the list we just read. Some of these circumstances or the characteristics of the people seem like they're not being blessed, but they are. It seems that way, but apparently this word suggests that the present standing with God and the future reward redefines life here and now. You're blessed. Okay. But you're going through all this still. You're blessed. Because those things have been redefined in light of a reality kept for you in heaven. All things, I'm not saying all things are God's will. I'm saying that all things that happen to you, God can use for a good purpose. All things can be used for a good purpose. So that means that there is both future blessing and present help because of that. This word, makarios, how many of us really live like this? I, I don't know if this is how we think about life, but it should be. Because this is Jesus' teaching, and, and those who are in the kingdom are blessed, and it shows what kind of people are in the kingdom. I want to take you to Acts chapter 26. You don't have to turn there, but just think about this. Acts 26, verse 2. Does anybody know what's going on near the end of Acts in Paul's life? Prison. That's good. That's a good one-word answer that covers it all. He's going from one prison to another. Remember, a riot just about starts, and they're going to kill him in Jerusalem because uh, he's been in the temple, and supposedly he's taken a Gentile inside the uh, the walls that separate the court of the Gentiles, and so they're ready to take Paul out. And so they know that there's this assassination plot that's in place for transfer as he goes from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And so he appeals to Caesar. 
And he goes and he stands trial before a couple of Roman governors. And while he's there, this one Roman governor doesn't want to send him on to Caesar because he likes talking to Paul. And so Paul is in the clink in Caesarea for two years. I would get discouraged without the grace of God to help me have perspective on that. Wouldn't you? Like, can we at least get on with life so we can know what's happening? His life is stalled, it seems, from the outside. How does Paul see it? In chapter 26, verse 2, he considers himself blessed, and he uses this word, makarios. I'm blessed to be standing before you today, Agrippa. So after two years in prison, he's telling everybody he's blessed. That's Paul's perspective. That challenges me. I would hope that we would think that way. We don't. He's standing before Agrippa after two years of being held. We would have gone crazy, uncertain about what's coming next. Or You find with Paul the perspective that he is blessed still. In uh, classical Greek literature, this word makarios is used a few times by Plato, just relatively few times, and it references the Isles of Blessing, the paradise where mythological heroes received were received by the gods. It was used to describe the state of happiness and well-being such as the gods enjoy. And in fact, Makaria came to be one of the one of the uh, names given to the island of Cyprus. Because that island was said to be so fertile that uh, it was able to produce upon its own shores everything that its inhabitants could either require or desire. Think about this. Cyprus, known as Macaria, the place of blessing. That I don't need anything from anybody else. Whatever else the world is doing to me, I've got Macaria. Are you with me? That's what we have in Jesus. Whatever is going on in the world, we have Macaria. There's only one true Macaria. That's the kingdom found in Jesus. He's the, he's the only, it's the only true Macaria, and it belongs to those that are mentioned in this. You know, sometimes uh, we go to the islands to get away. If you go to Hawaii sometimes, you're going to get away from the winter and the dark and work. And the normal moose, I don't, I don't know, maybe you like the moose. You're going to get away. And you know, I think what Jesus is promising here is that his people will always have Macaria. That it's a, it's a reality. It's not like a useful fiction to help us get through the day. You know what a useful fiction is? It's not really true, but believing it helps us to get on with life and feel good. This is not a useful fiction. This is real. But we need to call to mind the fact that we're blessed when we're going through the hardship. We need to call that to mind. We need to remember that my worst day, it's going to get better. My last day, it's going to get better. My best day, it's going to get better than that. Your highs and your lows, as a Christian, you always have a better day that's better than all of those laying ahead of you because of Jesus. This is what we have in Christ. There's a sad song, probably some of you have heard it, by Don Henley called The End of the Innocence. Have you heard that? And he's trying to find some kind of escape. And I thought of these words when I was thinking of McCary because this is what his wish is. It says, I know a place where we can go still untouched by man. 
will sit and watch the clouds go by and the tall grass wave in the wind. And what he wants to do is he wants to get away from all of his troubles. If you hear the song, you hear he's talking about his mom and dad's divorce and the trouble had growing up and how he's lost his innocence. And he just wants to get back to that place. Man, that, the craving for this blessedness is in the heart of our secular songwriters. They want this. We have it if we have Jesus. We could have, you know, um, Jesus could have used any other word, or Matthew as he translates this. Um, uh, many believe that Jesus, as he's teaching here, is either teaching Hebrew or Aramaic, or some kind of hybrid of both of those. Uh, sometimes we hear Hebrew words come through. Sometimes we hear Aramaic words. But as Matthew writes, and some think Matthew's gospel was originally in Aramaic and then was translated into Hebrew in the earliest manuscripts we have, or Hebrew, whatever it is, excuse me, not Hebrew, um, Greek, written in Aramaic, translated into Greek. But he could have used any other word. He could have used, he could have used rich. He didn't use that word. He could have used praised are those who are like this, but he didn't use that word. The word he chose was one that suggested well-being. The word seems to uh, congratulate, have a congratulatory element as a note. In Weymouth's New Testament, it says, People who are blessed may outwardly be much to be pitied, but from the higher and therefore truer standpoint, they are to be envied, congratulated, and imitated. That's how he translates this uh, poor in spirit. They may be pitied, but from a higher and therefore truer standpoint, they are to be envied, congratulated, and an and imitate. I'm going to hurry, but there's some good stuff here. This is as if to say, Jesus is saying, if you're persecuted, you're still under God's favor. You're not abandoned. What does persecuted mean? If you think about it on a relational level, persecuted means to be despised by somebody enough that they're willing to hurt you. Is that right? To be outcast to the point that they're willing to make life hard for you. Right? Would you consider that persecuted? Sometimes it can be as simple as calling you bad names, talking about you behind your back, excluding you. Or it can go to the extreme. Persecution can mean murder, killing you. There's a whole range in persecution, isn't there? So when it talks about being persecuted, it means essentially that that people have set themselves against you. Okay? And, and not just because of a personality conflict, but in the biblical sense, they've set themselves against you because you're for Christ. That's important. Because sometimes people are just, they just don't get along. And we can't, we can't equate that with persecution, although the devil might be behind that too, working. But I think the point that's being talked about here is that though you may be persecuted by the world, you're still under God's favor. They may reject you. I've accepted you. They may push you out and make life painful for you. I'm going to see to it that you're blessed and that you have what you need in life. You see how that works? If God's for us, who can be against us? That's the point that's being made in some of these here. Uh, this is significant because essentially, as I said, persecution is active rejection. But God is for us. Ian McLaren um, wrote... A, world, a worldly version of the idea of blessedness. I want to read it to you. This is how the world might translate this. 
not this. This is what they might come up with if they had their own secular Messiah. Listen. Blessed is the man who is always right. Right? Blessed is the man who is satisfied with himself. Blessed with the man who is blessed is the man who is strong. Blessed is the man who rules. Blessed is the man who is rich. Blessed is the man who is popular. Blessed is the man who enjoys life. And these are the beatitudes of sight and this present world. And it comes with a it comes with a shock and it opens a new realm of thought that no not one of these men entered Jesus' mind when he treated the topic of blessedness here. Thomas Watson said, blessedness doesn't consist in stuff. This is, I'm paraphrasing. It's not in status, and it's not in our temporal states. Okay, you know what I mean by that? Like what your circumstance is right now, that doesn't define whether you're blessed or not. You may be passing through, right? You might be, you might be going through the fire at the moment. When you walk through the fire, I'll be there through the flood, Jesus, uh, God said in Isaiah. So there's times that we pass through difficulty, but he's with us. So it's not in the temporal states that can show us that we have the blessing of God. And it's not, not in the stuff that we have, because there's a lot of people who are ranked pagans, and they, they have no regard for God whatsoever, and they got a lot of stuff. If we just judge it purely on that, then we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And uh, it's not in status, like having worldly importance. R.T. France, in his commentary, says the, the, sh- uh, the sharply paradoxical character of most of these recommendations reverses the conventional, conventional values of society. It commends those whom the world in general would dismiss as losers and wimps. The Beatitudes call those who uh, would be God's people to stand out as different from those around them and promises them that those who do so will not ultimately be losers. France goes on to say, Macarius, this word, it doesn't, it doesn't state that a person feels happy. Listen, this connects, if, if we could go in our mind, to Sunday, because I think that message was really important. Macarius does not promise that a person feels happy. Okay? He, he goes on to say uh, this, that, happier those who mourn, is peculiarly inappropriate translation if the word is understood in that way, but that they are a, in a happy situation, one which other people ought to wish to share. Fortunate gets closer to the sense, but has inappropriate connotations of luck. Congratulations, too, would convey uh, much more of the impact of Macari- of Macaria. So congratulations are in order when people persecute you because you have a reward ahead. Think of that. These are the consequences of living for God when there are kingdoms in conflict. The alternative is to be God's enemy. We talked about a little bit ago. And who would want to stand against God in the end? Look, people might exclude you, but God will include you. And people may boycott, but God can provide. Remember... um, a few years ago when the owner of Chick-fil-A made some comment that regarded his Christian stand and, like, the whole world was wanting to boycott. Have you ever tried to go to a Chick-fil-A? 
They got like four lines lined up around the corner. It's like people can't get enough of it. I don't know what they've got in their chicken, but it's got the blessing of God on it, you know? So the world tried to boycott, but God provided. People love Chick-fil-A. And even with the owner supposedly having taken a a Christian unpopular stance, and, and I don't even think it was in regard to policy with their restaurant. I think it was about his personal conviction. People might defame, but God will praise you. He'll say, well done, you good and faithful servant. That is to have fame with God. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the weight of glory, says one of, the, uh, one of the meanings of glory is to have fame with God. Fame with God, that he knows you, that he praises you. Now, that sounds weird to say. It's not in the same sense we praise him, but he recognizes us. I mean, if you want to be known by anybody, wouldn't you want to be known by God? Wouldn't you want to be uh, applauded by God when he says, well done? People might inflict pain, but God will heal. So our well-being doesn't rest on people. And that's why Jesus says those who live like this are blessed despite their circumstance. I want to show you a picture. This is Cyprus. There's a fortress here, and I put this fortress here on purpose with these beautiful boats in the front and the green water. And I think there's probably fish down there. That's what I imagine anyway. And uh, this fortress tells me that it's, an, it's a beautiful island, but you're safe there. You know what I mean? It's not just a beautiful island. There's been a lot of terrible things that have happened on beautiful islands. It's a place where you can be safe. That's what Macaria, that's what blessed means. That your well-being doesn't depend upon your present circumstances. If you're the kind of people who are following after God and you respond to him in the way that honors him, your blessedness is taken care of. It's in God's hands. So I want to explore these. I hope you'll be enriched by them. I think when we come through this, hopefully as we we hear these promises, it's going to strengthen the metal of our character to be the kind of people God wants us to be because you're still going to have ugly situations in life, but they don't have to shake you. Not the same way as when we were living on the the threads of, hanging by the threads of whatever our godless conception of life was about. We're, we're grounded in the Lord. Those things don't have to shake us. We can respond to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be stronger than that because we're blessed. Jesus says we're blessed. Look at those circumstances. They're not all good. People persecuting you, talk bad about you, excluding you, wanting to kill you. Jesus says you're blessed. I want to trust that word, not my own emotions. I want to trust that word and not what the world thinks about it or my flesh thinks about it or my mind has figured out about it. God's got a promise that's greater than all that. Amen. All right, stand with me if you would. Tell your neighbor sitting next to you across the aisle, in front of you, behind you, you're blessed. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Troy. Would you uh, close our service with prayer tonight? Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.